came as a shadow. I stand now a light. The depth of my darkness transfigures your night. My soul is a nocturne. Each note is a star. The light will not blind you. So look where you are. The radiance is soothing. There's warmth in the light. I, I came, came as, as a shadow. shadow to dazzle your night. I always identified with that shadow. Hello and welcome to the 19.9 podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Jesse Washington, writer for ESPN's Undefeated, co-author of John Thompson's autobiography, I Came as a Shadow. We're going to get Jesse's thoughts on working with the legendary coach and talk about this amazing autobiography. Before his time at ESPN, he covered race for the Associated Press, co-founded the basketball magazine Bounce. We got to get to that later, too. Jesse's also won a National Journalism Award from the Asian American Journalists Association, Journalist of the Year Award from the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, two feature awards from the National Association of Black Journalists, and a 2019 Associated Press Sports Editor's Top 10 Award for column writing. He's married with four children, a member of the Baha'i, is that how you say that? Baha'i faith? It is. And this is my favorite part, and we're going to start out here. You can find him giving folks the business on the basketball court near you. So <laughs> I love that little uh, addition to your bio. So you got to tell the story as we're, as we're kicking this off. You played at Yale, uh, so you still got some. You still got you have some hoop game. And w- what happened with that uh, YouTube video where you're giving this guy the business? I'll put it a link in the in the show notes. But you're giving this guy the business who is talking trash. Yeah, man. Okay, so let me start with uh, you left out one award. I was like the second most improved player. In fifth guard, fifth grade junior varsity. Okay. Um, so let's not forget that. Uh, and at Yale, I, let's put some quote marks around play because I watched my teammates play. Hey, I Yale. see you on basketball reference. Got no burn. Yeah, you got you saw my two points. Yeah, that's right. My two points in my career. And so, uh, but you know, man, like, uh, I love the game. And yeah. I've always played. And uh, you know how dudes be, um, nowadays the trend is to, uh, reclassify kids and so right. they're old when they get to college I, I did it the other way i skipped a grade so when <laughs> i showed up at yale i was like uh, i had just turned 17 i was little and scrawny i had no game but i you know i love to play and i've kept playing and i've held on to a little bit of what i got maybe longer than most people so i did an article about james harden flopping man at all the floppery down in houston and i Lots knew that when this went on social media everybody be like who are you to criticize james Harden's game you can't play so everybody who talked smacking me i was just like come play me and find out how whack I'm <laughs> and one guy took he said okay let's go and i had no idea he could have been nice but he, he was he was a, a, a army guy no an airman in the air force and when i showed up all the hoopers know you could see a guy take one shot yeah and and you could know if he has game or not. I walked in the gym. You know, I got a little frame on me, you know what I'm saying? I'm like 6'4", maybe 6'5", on a good day. I could walk the walk. I look like a hooper. I walked in, and everyone was like, oh, that was okay. people around. And then I looked down at the guy. He took one shot, and I was like, it is over. He has no chance. Oh, God. And he did it, and that's what happened. He had no chance. Look it up on the internet. Jesse Washington. Oh my gosh, it, it was it was great. And uh, so I told I told John before we got on. So Josh does uh, this thing on YouTube, the owner of Nineteen Nine, called Cold Threes. And so he he thinks he's mm. real tough. Uh, hit because you so you walk on no mm. warm up. Mm. Shoot 
he thinks he's he's really good. So we're mm. gonna throw this challenge out there so you can take you can take him down in the future. I think I think you got him. That's a tough one though. That's a talent. It is That's a talent, yeah. man. That's yeah. a, yeah. a skill. You gotta work at that. Um I do he's like a shooter. Him. Yeah, at, okay. That's you, John? You the shooter? No, 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 no. The other guy. Owner of ITN, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So um I'll play him for um five hoodies and and <laughs> some shorts. Yeah, um, that's right. Got it. All the, is, again, when, when I go down to the Y, I don't beat everybody at my local YMCA, so I need to find a challenge. So I just roll up, and kids will be out there sweaty, and I'll be like, "All right, let's let's play some shooting games. I got no warm up, and then we'll do it that way." So cold three, all right. Cold three, you it. Yeah. All right, so I listened to the audio version. Uh, I got about an hour drive from work, uh, and you do you are reading this right? That's you on yeah. there. So yeah. you do an awesome job. So. Thank you. Uh, just representing someone in words and making it come to life. And some people make me feel bad for listening to books instead of reading them. But I heard Malcolm Gladwell talk about uh, that. We've been listening to stories for a lot longer than uh, we've been reading them. And it actually accesses just this different part of your brain. And so I've really like taken hold of just listening to books and just enjoyed the audio version of it. So tell me about the process of creating the, the audio book and just getting, getting started with this book in general. Man, it goes back to the fact that when COVID hit, Coach and I were still finishing the book and we couldn't meet in person. So we did a lot of work on the phone. It goes back before that. You know, Coach was known for calling people up in the middle of the night. Um, hey, boy, you sleeping? But he never did that to me. He was very respectful of my time to the utmost. And so when COVID hit and I could tell he was a little anxious, I said, Coach, you know, whatever you need, I got you. You want to call me in the middle of the night? You want to stay on the phone? You know, I got you. I'm here for you. Whatever you need. And he said, you're going to regret that. <laughs> and I didn't regret it, but we would spend hours and hours on the phone, six, seven days a week going over the book. And a lot of it was me reading it to him and me and me making corrections. And so then, you know, it's funny. I tweeted this out today. One day out of the blue, he was just like, Jesse, I want you to read the audiobook because you wow. understand the, the feeling behind it. So imagine I'm over here at my house reading coach's book to him in his voice I'm identifying with this man. I'm really feeling it. I spent two years writing this book for him. So I just, I felt it deeply. So I was very uh, appreciative of the opportunity to read that, his audio book, you know? And so we recorded it right in this room that you're sitting here. Um, Macmillan Audio has a tremendous team uh, of producers. I really have to give a shout out to not only Sal, the producer, but the director. Her name is Alicia and I'm going to mess her last name up. She's an English woman. She, I didn't know that there was a director for audiobooks, and she read the whole book. She really got it, and she would coach me to really put certain inflections and emphasis emphases on things. So, thank you for for that. I'm glad that you guys appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesse, follow up question about that. So, as you're recording the book, you know, you have like in one part of your head, right? You have the director's notes, you know, guiding you as to like how to read an audiobook. But I assume probably in the other part of your head, right? Like you have coach's voice telling you, you know, retelling you these stories. So when you were reading the audio book, what were maybe parts of the book or themes of the book that you really felt yourself, you know, wanting to communicate or convey to readers who were accessing the book in this way? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, so uh, I, I did have the opportunity to go to coach's funeral and they passed out these little cards with it had his picture on it. And so I would put that picture on this on the desk next to the microphone. So he was looking at me and I felt like he was saying, all right, boy, you, you know, do me right here. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. He might have said something else. Don't be messing around with my book. Uh, you know, so yeah. um, really it was the, when he was talking to me about this, he felt it so deeply. These were the things that was the most important to him, you know, um, to get his message across. And he was a great communicator, you know, and so... I couldn't talk like him. That's not the point of it or imitate his voice. But I just really wanted to feel it because he felt it so deeply when he was talking about having to grow up with segregation in the Catholic Church, when he was talking about bringing his team onto a Big East uh, arena and an away game and people throwing racist taunts at his players and throwing bananas on the court, you know, or when they went out for the national championship against Villanova, somebody throwing a, a banana on the court. You know, and so like when he would talk about these things, he felt it so deeply. I just wanted to feel it. And I and I felt like if I if I could convey his emotion and the depth of and the intensity of his emotion, then it would be successful. I, I think the words too. You, you got you might not have got his voice because he's got that big, big bass, but you got the cadence of it. It felt I really felt even like reading the the words, you could tell you guys had spent a lot of time together. The the it was written like, you know, almost like I've heard him talk and I've heard his voice so much that you kind of have it in your head. So if you didn't do it right, you you would feel that as well. And I, I definitely didn't get that. That was so important to me to get to make sure it sounded like him. I've read a lot of autobiographies. And by a lot of great writers. And sometimes mm -hmm. the writer is so great that they get stuck on their own thing <laughs> and they want to do their thing. This is coach's book. And so I had mm -hmm. to make sure that it sounded like him, not like me. And the fact that people like you and others uh, say that it sounds like him is very important. Thank you. Yeah. So tell me about, so to, to help it sound like him though, you have to first gain his trust. And in the book, you write about how he's uh, notoriously not trusting of the, of the media. So how did you uh, earn that trust or, or what was the process like just getting to know, to know him? Yeah. Well, I earned it with performance because it was very clear implicitly and explicitly that if I didn't muster up, he would find somebody else. Um, you know, it was written out in our contract that at any point he could take his book and go home, you know, and then also one time, you know, I knew those contracts from the Nike days, right? <laughs> you know it, right? This is a contract negotiated by David Falk. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, also, there was no also knows a contract. Yeah, man. So, uh, but one time, you know, we recorded all the sessions and I saved everything. And I really feel that those recordings down the line made really people, you know, they might be valuable to some folks, certainly to his family. Yeah. So I said, one day I said, we were maybe like, the process took two years, we maybe six months into it. I said, coach, I got all these recordings. I want to make sure you and your family have them. Would you like me to give them to you all at the end? Or would you like to, me to give them to you as we go along? And he thought for me, he said, hey, give them to me as we go along. Cause you know, you never know when I might have to get rid of you. And he was <laughs> joking, <laughs> but, but he wasn't. You know? Yeah. So I gained his trust by working hard, number one. Um, I did a lot of research to prepare for every session with him. I didn't just pop in and be like, hey, coach, what you want to talk about now? I would look stuff up. I would ask him about things that happened. Um, we had voluminous uh, um, news clippings to go through of all of these games. I read books. Um, I watched games, watched TV shows, watched documentaries. And he said, hey, man, you're not lazy. You know? Um, I think one thing that I did to gain his trust was I found this letter that had been written in the, the Georgetown student newspaper that was basically calling his 
team, a bunch of dumb, you know what, mm-hmm. you know, they were criticized. It was his second season and they were criticizing his team for a lack of mental ability. And it really explained so much of what he had to deal with. And he was blown away by this letter. And he kept saying, man, I can't believe you found that. Like you really, you're not lazy. Mm-hmm. So that helped gain his trust. And then the writing was good. And yeah. other people said the writing was good. So once we got, got to that point, you know, um, by the time we got to the end of working on the book, he'd be like, he would talk about something. He'd say, you know how to hook it up, Jess. Just go ahead and hook it up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I like too that, you know, you, you said that. And one of the things I've even picked up on myself doing is watching for, you know, I love reading a good book because you watch for things that you might do too. So when I'm, you know, talking or even now, because, you know, obviously I'm talking a lot of basketball is watching for those like using the wrong code words because it is weird how it just gets ingrained in you. It's just part, it's, you know, it's part of culture and you you think about how you refer to a team. And I like, I, I go the other way. I want to do the opposite then. If I hear someone saying, oh, just athletic or tough, you know, tough, you know, I want to say, no, I'm going to use the other one. Cause that's really what they are. I've been looking to point that out to, you know, you read in, uh, we look through the media guides and you look through and some of the uh, things that these guys accomplished, you know, during, during the year, like I was looking at Charlie Ward today, uh, cause we've got Florida state coming up this weekend and he's president of the student body. And I'm, I love pointing that stuff out and love that coach really called that out too, where, where, uh, he felt that that part, you know, the, the well-rounded, athlete and he put so much time and effort into just helping these guys uh become all that they could be whether that was the you know an nba player or whatever they would go on to and you can see that from the the guys that graduated that's terrific man and big up to you for looking to to highlight other things you know um it might have been coach who told me this or somebody else but there a lot of times when you could tell the race of the player just by the words that are used to describe him without even seeing it. Like if you listen to it on radio, Oh, he's so, he plays so smart. He's so tough, you know, Mm. or he's so athletic, you know? And um, these are ingrained things that he was coach was always thinking about uh, on many levels at the same time about the words that he used and others would use. There's one thing that he persistently had to correct me about, for the first several months that we worked together and I would say, yeah, coach, but you know, white people would do this. And he'd be like, no, Jesse, some white people, Yeah, <laughs> some white people, whenever in the book, it would say that white people said, no, Jesse, it's some, some white too. people. So that's yeah. one example of how careful he was with his work. Yeah. Just thought, just well, just thought out. Yeah. Jesse, uh, one of the things that coach would talk about and building relationships with white individuals is he would say, uh, if, if a white individual earned the coach's trust, he would talk about how the race became uh, invisible uh, to, to him. And I, yeah, he said they would become colorless, colorless. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I, I wonder, you know, it seems to me that there's this real um, time for this book, you know, like it seems like uh, considering the uh, protests over the summer and um, a lot of the conversations about, uh, race relations in the U.S. It seems like this book provides like a lot of insight, and especially his kind of thoughts and considerations about connecting with white individuals, studying the white man. Um, you know, I guess I wondered, as you've seen a lot of uh, commentary about the book, how has it been received? You know, considering the current context, and especially it seemed like when you were finishing the book with Coach, you know, these were some of the. Um, I don't know, I guess the, the backdrop for, you know, the finishing process for the, the text itself. Yeah. So I think it's really struck a deep uh, nerve with a lot of people in a good way. It's really mm-hmm. resonating. And he's a very atypical person. <laughs> and he had this reputation of being a racist. Mm-hmm. And yet he had so many meaningful relationships 
with white people. Some of his greatest mentors, the coach, who, the assistant who stayed with him the longest, Mary Fenlon, Red Arback, Dean Smith. He said, I've never sought the approval of anyone, but Dean Smith is the only coach I would ever be an assistant for, you know, who I could take these criticisms for, uh, from. So number one, just by that example, I think it's amazing. And if John Thompson, the big, black, proud, unshut upable, you know, uh, always speaks his mind. There is no blacker person in American sports or perhaps history than John Thompson. If he had these types of relationships with white people, you know, Jack, Re uh, Frank Rienzo, um, Jack DeJoya, the president of the university and mm -hmm. on and on and on, then, well, the rest of us definitely can too. And you're not compromising yourself. He was very clear. Shout to Emmanuel Reed, who is one of the folks who works in the program at Georgetown. And he put us up on something specific with the second line of the book, uh, I believe. It, the first or the second is, my father always told me to study the white man. <laughs> and this young brother who works at Georgetown basketball office was like, huh, um, is that like trying to ingratiate yourself? And coach, so coach was able to be very specific. No, it's not saying, you know, kiss their behind or try to get in good with them. Understand how that world works. Understand how they do things. Now, things are a lot more integrated now than they were in the 1940s and 50s when Coach grew up. But his way of relating to white people, of immersing himself in it and understanding how it all worked and then excelling, you know, in an uncompromising fashion and always being him. You know, he says over and over in his book, I, I will I will always love Georgetown because they never tried to stop me from being me. So I've had a number of white coaches, white readers uh, and others just reach out. Other white folks reach out to me, you know, find me on the Internet and just be like, wow, I'm really blown away by this. I didn't know this side of him. Yeah. You know, I'm affected by this. And I think that a lot of black folks can get something out of it, too. You know, this is a very divisive time. Yeah. And, Unfortunately. Yeah. and um, you know, the black community is not monolithic and there are many different views about, you know, uh, working with and accepting our white brothers and sisters. And so coach's example, I think, is is the best that I've seen. And I hope a lot of people emulate. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like his he is such a complex or like, a, I guess, like maybe multi, maybe like in-depth lens for um talking and connecting with people you know you could really see it in the in the writing and in the narration about you know and he would talk about how he didn't have to agree with individuals to respect them and i think that you know in, in today's society right like we want to be um dichotomous right you know yes no enemy friend you know these sorts of things but you know i think that he really kind of paints how you could disagree and especially somebody who you know didn't have back down in him at all um, but still uh, be able to connect with them, you know, afterwards or after the after the game, these sorts of things. Um, I thought that was amazing. And I really yeah. I believe in 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 that philosophy and very few people today do, you know, and right, right, what right. you're referring to specifically. And I will give a little spoiler. Coach Thompson, after he was coaching, was was at a radio show. And one day he said Clarence Thomas called him up and they talked for half an hour off the air. And I was like. <laughs> I was like, Coach, uh, Clarence Thomas. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sort of just threw that out there, see where you go. He's like, yeah, Clarence Thomas. I was like, yeah, Coach, you know, a lot of um, – and, and, you know, he really taught me how to uh, be careful not to indict people off the rip, yeah. you know. 
And so I, I, so I carefully worded it and said, yeah, coach, a lot of black people would feel that Clarence Thomas has done a lot of things that have hurt black folks. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't have to re uh, agree with somebody to respect them. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people would say, no, I don't respect Clarence Thomas, yeah. you know, especially in this old, yeah. uber polarized era. So the fact that he said that and lived by that, I thought was awesome. Yeah, he's got. You've got this great uh, part in the book too, where he he meets with Rayful and as a part of the Alonzo Morning thing, and sort of the same situation there. The, the just the cojones on him to understand that he had to do something, but then I don't even know. Like I guess it's just the internal belief that he had in himself to to sort of navigate that whole situation i, I don't know like, what was his recollection years on about was he I, I was curious as an older man if he was like i can't believe i did that or if he was just like still had that like self self-assuredness when talking about that the best way to describe it coach really had this sort of uh you know a rather humble demeanor. He never made a big deal out of the things that he did. And earlier on, I'd be like, coach, it was so amazing. You did this, you did that. He'd be like, yeah, well, you know, it happened. And then he would go on. So that didn't work with him. The whole thing with Rayful, though, he knew in the course of, you know, the years that I was doing this book, Rayful Edmond, the D.C. drug kingpin who was meeting with coach's players and then coach called him in for a meeting. That was the number one thing everybody asked me about. <laughs> and in the black community, you know, I'm from New York and I knew who Rafer was when I was growing oh, up. I wasn't even from D.C. Jeez. I mean, this guy was an absolute legend and not for good reasons. And, you know, coach, he, I don't think that, you know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't amazed that he had did it. He still wasn't scared. And as he describes in the book, he you know, he said it over and over. Well, this is how I grew up. Mm -hmm. These are the people who molded me. So I reacted instinctively and he didn't <laughs> really perfect. dwell on it. He actually said I should have been more scared than I was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but no, no doubt. it is such a profound moment in his legacy that it wasn't an atmosphere of threat or coercion or anger. It was mutual respect. Yeah. And to your point, John, about what you said, you don't have to agree with someone to respect him. He didn't <laughs> condone drug dealing, yeah, right. you know, but. <laughs> He said, hey, this is a this is like this is a kid from my city. He could be one of my neighbor's children. Yeah. So am I going to shun him? I'm like, no, I'm going to try to talk to him. You know, I'm going to treat him like a human being. <laughs> and the way he was able to do that is amazing. That rateful chapter is really one of the most powerful points of the book. So good. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to skip back a little bit and talk about the rabbit because we have a, a big theme when we started this podcast actually talking about uh, playground basketball and uh, I had a Ali on who wrote the Boys of Dunbar which I'll link oh, to. Oh my man! Yeah, <laughs> yes. Shout out to Ali. Yes, yes. So we talked to him about his book, The Boys of Dunbar, and I'll, I'll link that podcast too. But he says that I needed to ask you about Bounce Magazine. I know that's in your bio, but he said specifically <laughs> with uh, Bobito. Garcia on chronicling the the New York City and playground basketball culture. So I want to talk a little bit about that, and we can talk about John Thompson's time, what what he what playground basketball meant to him too. Oh man, okay. So let's just start here. Playground basketball, man. Like, okay, I'm 51 years old, um, and yes, I will still give you buckets. Like, if, if you're the, okay, this is good because I'm 41, so I'm hoping that I'm saying that I'm saying that same thing when when, when I'm 51. All right. 
So, Aaron, did you did you play any college basketball? I didn't. I didn't make. I, didn't, I went to IU and was not good enough to play how, there. But I still play. I, shirts and skins on Wednesdays. I still. I still how play. How tall are you? Six feet. So and then I'm killing you. Okay. <laughs> so that's my challenge accepted. That's my I'm killing you. I love okay? it. And so it's a playground attitude. Yeah. Like that's how we grew up playing. I think that these kids now, like you know, they they're too much the ballers. It's too organized. It, too much is given to them. I'm going to sign you up and you're going to get to play. And if you don't get enough playing time on this team, I'm going to go put you on another team. Or I'm going to play into the coach. Man, go out to the playground and wait all day for next when you're 12. Yes. And then get to play in the last game before, you know. And I'll or, or know if you lose but, that you ne- will not get back on. You will not get back yeah. on. You won't. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, um, so Bounce Magazine was a New York City playground basketball magazine. And it was started by myself, Bobito Garcia, and Sean Couch. So, and we're playground basketball players. And uh, we started it really just to, it, it's for players. It's for people who play basketball. And, you know, it started, it was a little magazine about as big as my phone. It was held <laughs> together with like chewing gum and homers. And we just ranked the top uh, playground basketball tournaments in New York City. I mean, a lot of people don't know that there's like 50, 75, you know, men's leagues in New York City in any given summer. So, it really caught on and people just felt the authenticity of it. You know, Bob and I played together for years in New York. Bob put me on to many tournaments and things like that. And then Bob is a historian among the many other things that he is. Sean Couch's dad, Mr. Jim Couch, has been bringing people up through Dykeman. He's the original Dykeman, you know, and Sean grew up in Dykeman, played at Columbia, played for the Knicks. So, just really was an authentic magazine for basketball players by basketball players. And and we it, it just happened to pop off when and one was getting hot. So playground was nice. So we had a lot of stuff like that. Um, we had a lot of cats on that on the cover of that magazine on the come up coming up, you know, through the playground basketball world in New York who became big time. We had Kyrie on the cover. We had Lance Stevenson on the cover when he was in the eighth grade. Lance Stevenson was in the eighth grade. Going into the ninth, playing in men's league in New York City and bussing pros, bussing them. <laughs> that dude is, that dude is legit. This. Yeah, we had uh, we had Kemba Walker on the cover. Kemba Walker's nickname was Easy Pass, oh, okay, because nice. that's how he was going yes. through cats as a high schooler. Yeah, when we did the cover shoot with Lance Stevenson, he was in the eighth grade. I went out to Coney Island where they shot. He got game and everything. And I'm 30. I'm sort of in my prime. Yep. Me and Lance are the same size. Lance was a little stiff and didn't want to do this for the photo. So I was like, Lance, why don't we play one-on-one so you could get loose and get some dunks for the camera? Really, I wanted to measure up. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, <laughs> yeah. like, this kid is this kid is 14 years old. I'm a grown man. Yeah. I'm 30. We yeah. both 6'4", six, 6'5", six, about 200. Lance is probably about 180. How bad can, you know, like, can this kid really beat me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could really beat me. <laughs> no. It was like 15'5". 15, six, maybe. And then I know in his mind, he was like, who, who, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, who, I mean, tons of guys. He was yeah. so tenacious. Crazy. It wasn't that he was necessarily that much. Athlete. He was so tenacious. And in his mind, he was like, there's no way this dude could beat me. And I couldn't. Yeah. So Bounce Magazine, man, you know, um, we had a good run with it. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was like the purest expression of basketball in the written form that, that I think has come along in a long time. That's awesome. I, lo- I looked up some of the, some of the, uh, uh, old, old 
stuff online fun to read yeah. through. So I, it's I hard to find it is hard to find. Time. I'm like, you need to start it putting an archive really... together. Get 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 with yeah, uh, the we, slam guys and start putting stuff up. It, man. Yeah. yeah. One one day we do need to digitize it, man. But um, you know, I got uh, what do what do we got over here? Boom. Like this is my man Bob with the, you know, yes, that's the one I had. That's awesome. Yeah. Puerto Rico issue. All Puerto Rican hoopers. That's the one I that's what I saw online. I loved it. Yeah, man. We got a lot of legends on here. So um, you know, but sometimes, you know, the mystique can be greater if it's not easily accessible. Shout to Bob, shout to Sean Couch, shout to my man Justin Leonard. That was the crew that did Bounce magazine. It was literally hand to hand. We were passing out in the playground. Um, it was a tremendous experience. I loved it. I love it. Two, all right. Two follow-up questions. Uh, when Lance beat you, did he did he give you the air guitar? At all? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I got a story. Wait, wait. wait, wait. So fast forward. Man. Was he blowing in your ear? Oh, man, Bobito. Like my brother Bob, I love this man. He is so authentic, and he started a basketball tournament called Full Court Twenty One. So. Maybe 12 years ago, I'm coming through New York. I hit Bob up. Yo, can we get a run in? Yeah, come over to the the Y and 21st Street and whatever. And it was me, Bob, and and his dude named Roman Hooper. And he was like, let's play 21, but let's play full court 21. I was like, what is that? Every change of possession, you got to score on the other end. Oh my I was like, wow, let's go. <laughs> and, and then if you hit, so you score a bucket, then you shoot from the top of the key. And if you make three, you get the ball back. Yeah. You got to go the other way. Oh, wow. But, yo, great workout. I'm so Bob kidding. starts a tournament for Court 21, and this is what it's about. He started in New York. Whoever wants to show up that day, we're going to play Full Court 21. There's a maximum of six people on the court. You might have three or four of those six-people games. Whoever wins those individuals, you play one more game of Full Court 21. Bob okay. started having this tournament all over the world. Barcelona, Milan, Tokyo. Costa Rica, Cuba, Puerto Rico, <laughs> and five or six times in New York. And the winner of every single day of Full Court 21. Oh, hell of people in Canada, too. Toronto, Montreal. They were good up there. Um, whoever won at the end of the summer came to New York City and got to play for the all-world Four Court 21 championship. So your boy uh -uh. won three times in Philly. <laughs> and then I couldn't make Philly one year. So I drove up to Montreal, shout oh to Will Strickland, God. took day money. So, so the last summer before the pandemic, I know this is a long story. No, you're I'm great, going. man. This is the I last love it. summer before the pandemic. I am the four-time uh, qualifier for the All World Championship. <laughs> I am 50 years old, yes. five zero. The the, the All World Championship. We got people literally from around the world. It's fantastic. My man Bob has sponsors. He had conferences and sponsors. We got all the shoes and everything, the, the the shirts and the shorts with the logos. It was hot. And I'm 50. And I, I just happen to have a really good game. The park is packed. It's at Goat Park in New York City, a.k.a. Rock City Park. And Bob got celebrities at the game, including Lance Stevens. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm in my bag today, yo. I'm in my bag. I'm giving people the business. I threw it through this dude's legs, splash, and the crowd is rooting for me because I'm 50 years old. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. There's this other cat, Matt Thomas, who G League player. Okay. We get in a – and there's no out of bounds in Full Court 21. Nah. So you just – the ball goes to the sideline, fall on the ground, I come up. 
boom, splash. Crowd goes absolutely nuts. <laughs> and Bob is on the mic and he goes, yo, Jess, give him the guitar. And I look uh, at Lance. And go, <laughs> yes. Lance has his phone out. So I, Lance's his Instagram. Doing Lance's yes. dance. Oh my yes. God. I got to pause it. So yeah. <laughs> I scored two points in college. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Four-time champion. That's right. I thought you were going to say Lance, yeah, came, Lance was going to come out of the crowd and take you out, take you out again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Lance yeah. is tough, man. I know. Lance, Lance was one of my favorite players, man. When, yeah. when he was in the league, I mean, period, he was just so entertaining. I, lo- oh, did, I love that. didn't care, man. No, lo- it, lo- you never knew what was going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So let's bring it back to the book and the rabbit who is Elgin Baylor is this is it also represents something from the playground It's this mythology that builds up around guys on the playground and nicknames too. I, I'm really on this nickname trend. You, you said that Kemba Walker easy pass. It seems like that's where a lot of the nicknames came up. Yo, are the nicknames? Are we losing the nickname? I, I think we'll, we'll we are. Back to this. I want to go down the rabbit hole. There's no real great nicknames anymore. I know. I'm mad. I'm you know, I'm like, legit mad about it. This is this is a, this is a, a a stoop that I'm gonna die on. I want those to come back. I'm gonna. We need a foundation for better nicknames because again, you know re- where nicknames were handed out. Playground, on right? The playground. That's where they started calling him the rabbit. Yeah. No, I mean, so John Thompson grew up playing on the playgrounds and had a love and a reverence for it. And I really latched on to that part of the book where he, you know, this man Elgin Baylor's legend grew on the playground. And he said there were literally when the word would go out and Coach Thompson was like, mind you, we didn't have no Internet. No, you know, it was just word of mouth. Oh, the rabbit's going to play Wilt Chamberlain and 2000 people would come. And he was like, Jesse, he, he emphasized. He was like, I am not exaggerating at all. There were easily 2000 people at a playground basketball game. So uh, the legend, you know, would grow and. People claim that they're, you know, exaggerated and sometimes they they get, you know, a little exaggerated. But um, obviously, Elgin Baylor proved that he was every bit of what they said he was when he got to the NBA. I mean, this is the man who invented hang time. He was Jordan before Jordan. Coach Thompson said he could change directions in midair. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, unbelievable. So playground basketball in Washington, which is one of the greatest basketball cities in the country. Um, playground basketball in Washington meant so much to Coach Thompson and just the city of Washington and Washington basketball meant so much to him. I mean, so many great players coming out of there to this day. But one of the things that he is most proud of in his life was that he won championships in high school, college, the NBA and uh, NCAA championship with Georgetown and a gold medal at the Olympics. So and he said very few people from Washington can say that they did that, which he's very proud of. Yeah. Jesse, throughout the book, uh, coach Thompson really talks about, you know, kind of the lore of playground basketball and how much, you know, like how much that built his understanding of basketball and then this dynamic of celebrity. But then he also talked about how many great playground basketball players never got a chance to play in college or possibly the pros. Now, Fast forward to your magazine, Bounce Magazine, which is kind of like archiving almost like this uh, verbal lore of playground basketball. And then fast forward to today, uh, you know, I don't know what I, I guess I want to ask you, you know, what's your sense of the playground basketball scene now with social media? Is it 
being enhanced because there's, you know, video evidence and people are passing that around? Or is it uh, kind of getting lost, kind of getting paved over? And I think that's kind of a critique of, you know, the younger people these days. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So number one, shout to like uh, my man, Bone Collector. Uh, I did an article about Bone Collector for Bounce. He was one of the only people not from New York to become a legend in New York as a basketball player. One of the few. Came to New York and just did crazy things. And so I did a story about him. He's still out there like going on playgrounds, busting people up, throwing the ball through people's legs, making them fall down. I do think, though, that like the competition aspect of playground basketball is really, it seems to be gone, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that the last playground moment in nationally was when the NBA had the lockout or whatever, and mm-hmm. guys were just like barnstorming yeah. around. And your man Kevin Durant yeah. went to the Rucker and, and had that phenomenal game. And mm-hmm. the ending scene, please Google Kevin Durant Rucker Park and watch him go nuts. The, the thing that made it special was at the end of the game, so the neighborhood is all there and they're going crazy. And after he hits the last ridiculous bucket, just a whole bunch of regular people and kids come out and surround KD and they get like they get to touch their heroes. That's something that doesn't happen in the NBA behind the ropes and all that kind of stuff. And so I really respect him. You know, Kobe went to the Rucker to make it a point. I'm going to the Rucker, you know. <laughs> so but I, I can't. And this is no disrespect. It's just the culture of it has changed so much. Nowadays, they're all going to play with Chris Brickley in Manhattan in the private run, you know, (laughs) at his at his gym over there. And I love what Chris is doing. And who wouldn't if you're a pro? Of course, I want to do that. They're not going uptown to play anymore. Rest in peace to Greg Marius, by the way, who ran the Rucker tournament entertainers basketball classic for 25 plus years. Great guy passed away too soon. So I think that young people also, you know, they don't. And this goes for all sports. They don't just go outside and play. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they might go to the Y and the real hoopers will go to the Y and have pickup games. But so much of it is over organized. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I was I have a son who plays Division one basketball. And when he was home in COVID this summer, him and his high school buddies, they went out and had Sandlot baseball games. They had like seven game series <laughs> nice. and home and away and umpires that and not organized by anyone but themselves. Just yeah. young people having fun. So that's yeah. the thing that we're missing. I think that a lot of kids now, they know how to do a step back, but they don't know how to play basketball at a young age because they just don't play enough games. You're always working out. I'm, I'm doing drills. I'm getting my shots up. Man, we got to play. So, you know, I don't want to be the old guy on his porch yelling, you know, get off yeah. my playground. Um, and everything, you know, things change. The skill level of today's players is phenomenal. No doubt. Um, but a little bit of the the authenticity and the joy has been sucked out of it. And also, you know, sort of like um, NBA guys used to feel that they had to prove themselves that like, there was a time where if you didn't go to the Rucker and do your thing, you that weren't. was a, you know, yeah, you, you didn't really get your full measure of credibility because well, Kobe did it. KD did it. So, you know, because there were real players up there, like you had to succeed in a different way. You have to be a little bit tougher to get it outside, you know. Oh, you know, um, shout to my man Will Strickland for this saying, yo, concrete is bad for my knees. Concrete is good for your blankety blank heart. <laughs> you know, like, so um, that's my that's my playground rant. You know, there's a lot of terrific young players. Here, and, you know, AU is all good. We got, you know, it's, it's all good. Yeah. But the more you can play just for the love of playing, 
get your butt outside. And if I see you, I'm going to get you. I mean, those guys, those, those guys, yeah, no full, watch out full court 21 for sure. <laughs> if, I, if, if he wanders up to you and wants to play full court 21, go the other way. <laughs> yeah. But oh, I think that too, what you're talking about there is the creativity that you get. And there's an egalitarian aspect of the playground basketball that maybe that's, and, and I think that, uh, gosh, I don't even know what the word is, but just like homegrownness of those, those nicknames, right? It's just a, it frees you up. There's no pressure or anything like that. You know, it's yeah, not on Instagram. It, like, you don't earn it off hype. Right. You know, <laughs> you don't earn it off highlights. You know, I, I mean, I like watching young kids on the Internet do their thing. But, you know, everybody makes every shot on a highlight. Yeah. You know, and and so, and you know, it's funny because that, you know, like the and one style and the and one mixtape and all that kind of stuff came out of the Rucker. So and and they live for highlights out there. But, you know, this Internet working out on the Internet and editing it out and stuff like that's a it's a different culture now. Yeah. I feel it's a little less authentic. Yeah. Um, and people and you have to earn a nickname on the playground. By the way, Bobito is the king of nicknames and was an announcer at the Rucker. <laughs> yes. Bobito is the one who gave Lance the name Born Ready. He needs his own he needs <laughs> awesome. great nickname, by the way. He needs he needs yeah, his own great. site. Just all these guys. He should be a cons- nickname consultant for the NBA. Like they need to hire him immediately. A hundred percent. I mean, it always bothered me that they nicknamed like like Anthony Davis calling him the brow. Oh, I know. What are you doing? That's why. Yeah. Like you pick an embarrassing feature of somebody. Like no, like no. that's whack. That's not. A, that's something that like corny sports writers. You want to make fun of them? I know. Yeah. Like, I want honey dip. Wow. How is honey dip not a, not come back? Somebody else needs that one. I read that. And I was like, what? That's amazing. <laughs> You know, the, ra- know, the rabbit should start a movement. Exactly. The <laughs> rabbit should be somebody should be the rabbit right now. What are we doing? Man. Uh, yeah. Well, we already got De'Aaron Fox, so he's a fox. And he's perfect. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? That would be perfect. If you had one guy named the rabbit and the fox, you could get him in the matchup. Yeah, the talk, would is love there that. any real nickname in the NBA right now? Uh, well, you. I don't know. Not, I don't know. Uh, King J. Ja- I mean King James is so no. I mean he's so no- at least so no the beard, the beard, right, the beard, the beard but that's so obvious. I know. Yeah, yeah. with that, yeah, the yeah. beard, yeah. It's just yeah. Na- it's just naming liked- an aspect of him too. Everybody's just I liked a- when like Katie- uh, oh, I was gonna say I liked when uh, people tried to nickname Katie the Slim Reaper, but I liked that he didn't like it. Like you know, like like he had a nickname <laughs> yeah. that was like scary, yeah. but like he didn't want to go by that, you know, or Durantula. like um, so he, I think they tried to do Durantula, yeah, or Durantula, yeah. right, 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 or Kawhi having like the Kingslayer, right, but not oh, yeah, you know not totally. Good. I don't know. The cl- so him with the claw with those big with those big mitts of his. That's all right. That's all right. Just because he's. I think you're right. They used to call Dr. J the claw up, did he? uptown. Okay. See. Yeah, they did. They That'd be did. all right. Um, yeah, you know what? We uh so we need to get this to uh somehow we need to get this into the um the the TNT inside the NBA ecosystem. <laughs> this should be a whole bit for I them, think, right? Yeah, Kenny Smith knows what time he, it's uh, like. Yeah, you're right. Jet. Yep, you're right. The Jet he's also the great, jet. great nickname. That's that's you solid. Know? Yeah. We need yeah. to get that. So um going back to the book. Coach's player, Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. his point guard for his championship team, um, a very humble guy, very accomplished guy, unbeknownst to me and almost everyone else, started that show inside the NBA. On oh, yeah. He still has connects up there. 
So I'm gonna try and get a word to Michael. You get a word to Kenny. Like, yo, we need we y'all need this. to start handing out some nicknames. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it, it could it could make for great arguments too. They love arguing, man. When they start handing these out to players and they hate them, they'll be like, "Wait, what? You hate that?" Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a Shaq segment, you know? Right? Like yeah. he just smashes some nicknames on people. That'd be great. Indeed. Yeah. Although I don't think Donovan is gonna accept this. No, no, no. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, that's right. Hey, before we move on, so I want to talk a little Georgetown next, but uh, I want to shout out Samantha Wallace Jackson. You got a, a great part in here and about coaches' uh, own education. I mean, first, he I feel like he was an educator, like he's a coach, but he really saw himself as a teacher, and he, wa- and he was, and uh, she had such an impact on his life. Uh, it's such a great story. People got to read the book and just, just learn about what what he had to go through because uh, he was, he was a, a supremely intelligent human being, but he had to go th- jump through strange hoops, just, you know, the way the system was uh, set up uh, almost against him succeeding uh, on the educational level. And he was able to overcome that with uh, the help of teachers and people in his life. His parents were amazing. The way you start the book out with them too, they're two incredible people as well. Yeah, man. I mean, the system was called segregation. <laughs> That's what the system was called. Was called Thank you for called, naming it. You're you right. Know? Yeah, and no so, doubt. Yeah, yeah. No and, doubt. And I mean, Coach John Thompson, one of the most intelligent people to come across the American public in our history, uh, was considered to be, quote unquote, retarded by his <laughs> elementary school teachers. Almost he can't say it, you know. Disability. And in the fifth grade, he couldn't read. <laughs> and he almost, it, we came this close to not knowing who John Thompson was. He could have just been cast aside, but he had a black woman who taught him some Meta Wallace Jackson and said in the sixth grade, oh, you're not stupid. You just can't read. You need some help. (laughs) And, you know, that stuck with him. And so he he would never overlook anyone's intelligence. And a lot of people criticize him for bringing these players to Georgetown. Um, It still angers me how they were viewed as undeserving of being there um, just because they were black and athletes when he would look deeper and see the intelligent people as someone did to him. You know, if someone hadn't said, oh, you're not stupid, you just yeah. can't read and did not judge the book by its black cover, then we would never have known who John Thompson was. We would have been deprived of John, everything that he gave us. So, you know, uh, an amazing part of his story. And and I love, too, in that in that part of his life, he talks about being held back and how that wasn't something he wanted, but something he needed. And then how he's, you know, he's used that as a lesson when coaching students, you know, athletes that, you know, oftentimes they they would have lessons that they didn't want, but, but really needed, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and he also says, he's very clear in his book where he says, yeah, not all of my players love me. Some of yeah. them hope that, that they never see me again. <laughs> and I feel the same way about some of this. That's right. But That's he right. says sometimes when you're in a, in a teaching role, you have to do things that people don't like, you know? <laughs> yeah, and he said, yeah, I didn't right. like it when they held me back, but I dealt with it. Yeah. And it was yeah, better for right. me. Yeah. So he, he understands that. Yeah. And that seemed to really translate into, you know, his ethos of not serving as the master, not exploiting his student athletes for their athletic prowess, but really holding them to their commitments of athletic or academic achievement as well. Even though, you know, maybe they were more focused or came wanting to pursue professional basketball as a singular goal. He was so far ahead of his time with that, making sure his kids graduate in the 70s and the 80s, man. Most of these schools didn't care. You come as long as you're eligible and play ball. And then when, when your eligibility is up, 
you know, see you later. Yeah. That's um, right. End of transaction. Absolutely. End of yeah. transaction. Emphasis on the transaction. Good word. You know, but he would he was ahead of his time with that. Now all of these schools are making sure that people graduate. The NCAA is making sure they graduate. So, <laughs> but John Thompson really cared about it. And he cared about it first. Yeah, I think that's that. We, we've I've noticed this with some of the the older coaches too that we've been looking back on the way that they had to come up to in the different levels and maybe see you know go through different struggles. I don't know if that's changed or if it's just the different pressures that the coaches have on on them today. But uh, they've just seemed to have this different focus. I mean, him working as a counselor, he had so many different jobs too that he was able to bring just this like such a well rounded life experience to the coaching aspect of it. It was, it wasn't just basketball for him. It was about life. It was like, he would get, get on, you know, follow a guy to the bus. And just like, he knew that there was more to life and he wanted to make sure his players, you know, understood that there's this, you got the story about at practice, him putting some things into their water bottles to, to make a point there. I mean, just like the, his not understanding of like human nature is just next level. I mean, that's such a cool thing for a coach to, to have. And I think you do a good job of exemplifying that in him thank you i mean i hope that other coaches read it and understand that having that type of understanding and ability it's a skill that they have to develop i think most coaches want to care about educating their kids i think most coaches want to connect with their children and really help them to be better people but winning gets in the way you know and and also it's something that they may not always be good at they have to work at that to become good at it so i hope that some coaches are inspired to to increase their capabilities in that area because I have seen a lot of coaches, you know, I have two kids who play basketball. Um, my daughter's, you know, going to play college basketball too. I've interviewed a lot of coaches and I think that uh, too many of them don't have that piece <laughs> of really what should be the primary qualification for coaching. <laughs> so hopefully they'll read it and say, Hey, let me, let me up my game in this, in this. They respect. should. I mean, if you're a co- if you're a coach, you should definitely read this book because he, you can get a lot from just the, his approach to the game. And again, his willingness to get involved, you know, that, that kind of no fear attitude of getting involved on different levels with the the player's life. Cause it can be a little intimidating as a coach to, to delve into other aspects of a kid's life rather than just what's in front of you to like go out there and reach out to, to where they're at in the community or, you know, talk to Rayful or whoever, whoever, no understanding like, Hey, it's not just about the guy that shows up in the gym. This guy's got a whole other life and I want to have an impact on that as well. Yeah, it takes courage and you have to sacrifice it. And coach knew that if he left to his own devices, he would do what would help him win. So he set up safeguards to protect him from his own competitive instinct. You know, it's tough. If you are you going to make a decision that could cost you a game, but is better for the kid? (laughs) That's the question that coaches have to answer. And we all know what the answer should be. And we all know what it too often is. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's a big theme in this book. Yeah. Aaron, you mentioned, um, you know, like the the coach's trajectory and like the, I don't know, level of scrutiny that he constantly faced. And and then the additions of social responsibility that he had um, as a black coach. And, you know, Jesse, I want to ask you this, you know, um, throughout throughout the book, there's this theme that uh, coaches, black coaches will never be free until they're free to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wondered, you know, when you were talking to the coach, um, did he feel uh, more optimistic about um, the uh, pers- the possibilities or perspectives for black coaches, or or did he feel like it was kind of the same level of scrutiny that he was experiencing in the eighties? 
he did not feel optimistic (laughs) because of the evidence, because (sighs) the state for black coaches in college basketball has regressed. Um, (laughs) There are no real, uh, there are no black coaches with real and significant influence as he had and John Chaney and Nolan Richardson and George Raveling. Um, And I don't think it's for lack of ability. Um, It's a number of reasons. Um, Part of it is the way basketball has changed. There's more of a win now mentality. Part of it is the way opportunities are handed out. Um, Black coaches in college football have never really gotten an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And no black college football coaches won a championship. Um, You know, we know what's going on in the NFL. Uh, The NBA is up and down. So, you know, he was not optimistic. He kept saying, hey, man, we've gone backwards. What are we going to do about this? You know, somebody asked me recently, who do you think is the next John Thompson? And then uh, a, a wise person that was involved with the conversation said, well, maybe it's these folks on the grassroots level. Maybe the next John Thompson, there's a lot of John Thompsons really working in the community with kids who we might not ever hear of them. And I really like that answer. So while coach was not optimistic about it, the highest levels of college basketball. And if we look out there, if I had to ask you who's the next John Thompson, it would be tough to say. You know, someone who stands for something more than winning, but still does win because winning is the prerequisite for getting any attention or having any influence. So, but I do think that there are thousands of John Thompson's white and black across the country who are consciously or not following his model of working for kids and their teachers. And they're really preparing people for life. Mm-hmm. through basketball and i think that that's one of his biggest legacies i'll tell you what two guys i like right now we're talking about florida state this friday and leonard hamilton i think has done an awesome job at florida state and doesn't get enough credit down down there for what he's done and then uh i picked uh shaka smart and uh texas in the final four this year so hoping uh for big things from from them too always liked him as a coach i think he's aw- just the way he approaches the game and the the way that his teams play is so much fun so much fun to watch uh but i want to talk a little bit George, georgetown so uh I, I actually like almost spit some uh water through my nose when i was listening to the ewing and the briefcase story that you had in there <laughs> the, Sam, the samsonite briefcase i was driving down the road and having a, my coffee in the morning, I think it was, and about lost it. So that was that was so great. But what did Patrick Ewing mean to coach, and how how did he talk about him? Because it just seemed like to me, reading and listening to you, that uh, he just had such reverence for for this guy. And another guy who doesn't get enough credit as a as a coach either, because he's a he's an incredible coach as well. He meant everything to to Coach Thompson, um, and one of the biggest reasons is because. Patrick Ewing was the first top, top player to choose to play for a black coach. When there was a perception that, oh, no, you got to go to one of these Indianas or North Carolinas. And, you know, Coach Thompson loved the Carolina coach, Dean Smith. He loved Bobby Knight, which is a whole nother thing. (laughs) Um, You know, but Patrick Ewing was not afraid to play for a black coach. And that made it okay for other top players to do that. Um, And so... That, I think, is the is where it began. And then Patrick Ewing is just a good person and intelligent. Uh, he said that Patrick Ewing had the most leverage over him 
of any player he ever had and used it the least, <laughs> uh, you know, and coach Thompson tried to get him to go pro. He's like, I don't want you to stay because if you get hurt, I'm going to feel terrible. And Patrick was like, no, I got to come back. I'm not going to leave you without a cent. <laughs> you know? And so it just goes on and on and on. Um, you know, he was definitely like a son to him to the point where when Georgetown fired his biological son, JP three, Coach Thompson encouraged Patrick Ewing to apply for the job. So um, that relationship, I witnessed that relationship on many occasions. I witnessed them interacting with each other. And uh, it was a beautiful thing to see. Just, just, just thinking about the pressure that he felt. How, how did the pressure and but then getting Patrick help him to shape uh, what Georgetown basketball was? Because I think that it's so weird when we think about these teams that have uh, ha become so iconic, and these Georgetown teams were just incredibly iconic. Um, it seems like it's tied to the coach, and I was just curious if he realized like he was cultivating a certain type of basketball or, or or a certain image for himself and the team or or what he wanted to accomplish with Georgetown because it was just it's thinking back it just is so strange that you know uh, it doesn't get more credit it almost seems like he still looms over the pro the program even though they've been tremendously successful even since he's left uh and Indiana as an Indiana fan same same thing I can say the same thing you know Bob Knight still the specter still there it's been 20 years and it just is kind of different I don't know if it's just the way that college basketball is organized now or, uh, you know, what if, if those guys are just so legendary that it's just hard to escape the shadow. But I'm curious if he had kind of a perspective on that. I think he knew it, although he didn't talk about it a lot. I mean, we would go to work and walk past his statue <laughs> in the hallway of the John R. Thompson Athletic. Yeah. And, uh, and as big as Coach Thompson was in real life, the statue was bigger. Yeah. So he knew it and he understood it. And he did it on purpose. You know, he wanted to succeed. He stood for something. And he's the only coach who is extremely successful at winning, but is known primarily for things other than winning. <laughs> and, and is what makes him unique. I can't think of any other coach, as many great coaches and great people as have come across college basketball, who we could say the same thing about. So he knew it. And, and yes, part of the iconic nature of his program was, coach Thompson himself, but he never would have been successful. And we, and, and we would not be talking about him now if he had not won hmm. and he knew that he had to win in order to be heard. So it was the combination of the two that made it successful. And then that comes with the players, you know? And, and so at the end of the book, he said something very poignant where he said, I really want to thank all my players for, you know, giving me the privilege of, of coaching you. Hmm. Like so that. he really gave credit where credit was due. That's awesome. Well, I wanted to hit Iverson too, because that, that kind of takes us towards the end, end of his career. But again, it, it's just an example of uh coach being willing to step out in a way and, and that, that, internal confidence in himself that he could uh, take a player who at the time was perceived to, to have, uh, you know, problems just based on what was in the media, but he seemed to be able to cut through that again 
And, uh, you know, obviously he became tremendously successful, maybe even, uh, more known now than, than coach just his, his, uh, legacy seems to still be kind of growing and continuing to influence the larger culture. So kind of crazy the way that, again, one of those players that might not have been, had it not been for coach. Yeah. You know, coach realized later on, I needed to take people like Alan because that was the kind of challenge that invigorated me i needed to push against the system <laughs> alan iverson was almost railroaded into oblivion if coach hadn't taken we wouldn't have known who he was he was wrongly convicted and his conviction was later tossed out for lack of evidence and coach saw an injustice and wanted to help address that he knew he was a good player but he didn't know he was one of the greatest little people that ever played a game of basketball and I believed him. He said it over and over, and I really believe him. I didn't know he was that good. You know, he wanted to help somebody. He wanted to help his mom. Really, he was like, ah, I don't think it's going to work. And then his, uh, you know, coach says in the book that Ann Iverson told everyone else to let's leave the room and say, Coach, please, if you don't take my son, they're going to kill him. And that's when Coach Thompson decided to do it. Uh, you know, he also said that after that, he had a conversation with Allen. And Alan says he had never heard someone use the word MF or more than he had in that first conversation with Coach Thompson. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, it's an incredible pairing of those two people. And I'll leave it for readers to, to sort of dig into that chapter. Iverson is the only person who gets his own chapter, only player who gets his own chapter in Coach Thompson's book. And Coach was a little worried. He asked me to your earlier point about Patrick. He said, um, do I give Patrick enough time in the book? You know, because Alan got his own chapter, but Patrick doesn't. And, and we had to assure him, well, Patrick, you talk about throughout, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you give him credit, you know. But um, it was really special. And they might seem like an odd couple because Alan is, you know, in his appearance, you know, and his tattoos and everything and, and, and his off the court problems. And that might seem to go counter to John Thompson's image, but John Thompson was someone who didn't live his life according to what other people thought he should be. Definitely. And coach Thompson expressed it his way. And he loved the fact that Alan expressed it his way. And he loved that boy. Um, <laughs> and, and it was very apparent in, in, you know, talking about him. And I think it really comes through in the book too. I love that he was able to kind of redefine coach a little bit too, because he'd always been seen as kind of a big man's, you know, Matumbo, Morning, Ewing. And then all of a sudden here comes this little point, you know, rocket fueled point card uh, who's just up blazing all over the, the court and just an incredible, I mean, unbelievable player. I got to watch him one time live uh, and the the speed that that he had, and the, the tenacity that he played with was just so much fun. Just like, you know, everything that I would have wanted to be in a, in a basketball player, if I could have made myself into a basketball player would have been Iverson yeah he was acutely aware of the fact that everybody said he was a quote-unquote big man coach and that bothered him so he liked because he had all these other guys out. right Michael Jackson and all you know it's, it's it's weird reading reading the book where I'm like yeah why did everybody think that because he had all these incredible point guards Fred Brown was in there and all these all these fun guys he really did he sent a lot of guys to the pros at the guard position so no doubt <laughs> Jesse, I was wondering, you know, earlier you were talking about how Coach Thompson, you know, is this real balance of college competitiveness, um, but then also, too, this real authentic investment in his uh, athletes. You know, he describes himself as a second-rate educator 
And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, college basketball, right, is kind of the best and worst of sport, right? You see these aspects of exploitation, which Coach Thompson himself talks about and how his understanding of that dynamic in college sports is, has changed over time. But then also, too, you know, in college basketball, we see these opportunities for social change, like his uh, protest of Proposition 42 or um, his uh, creation of the Black Coaches Association. Um and so I guess, you know, you've obviously covered college basketball for a long time. You talked about your time at Yale where you watched a lot of great basketball. <laughs> um, do you, uh, I, I wondered, like, how did your understanding of college basketball either get supported or changed uh, based on your time with Coach Thompson? I had a greater understanding of everything that goes into it other than just what's on the court <laughs> and how how difficult it is to – you know, to succeed. And when I say succeed, primarily help these young men become what they're supposed to be and also to win games. (laughs) The two things are really sort of diametrically opposed, you know, and in today's environment, and part of this comes from the book and part of it comes from, you know, my children's experiences, but there's this idea that you have to give yourself over entirely to basketball in order to make it, to go D1. That's the thing now. Yeah, I want to be D1. I want to be D1, let alone go to the NBA. So it's, and, and we have this myth about, you know, the, the, this not, myth is the wrong word, you know, this, uh, this word, the grind. <laughs> Man, I saw somebody on the internet saying that I will guarantee you will play Division One basketball if you train for six hours a day. <laughs> You should not train for six hours a day. And, and, our, and, our, and our young people are having an unhealthy balance in their lives. And it's this, this obsession with basketball is costing them real valuable things in their lives. They're having to give up too much. And I don't think that it's probably necessary to give up that much. But everyone's like, well, I have to work harder than the next guy. And Coach Thompson was all about that. You know, he recognized that and refused to give into that and would take time out of practice just to talk about current events. You know, he would sit him down on the bench, blow the whistle, sit him down on the bench and talk for an hour, have a discussion, basically have a seminar about something that had nothing to do with basketball. That's out of your practice time. So I think that what I've recognized now from working on this book is that I think the balance is off with basketball. I mean, these young people in college at the top levels of college basketball are putting 35, 40 hours a week into Mm -hmm. this sport. And I know they love it and, and, you know, I don't blame them for it and it's the way the system is set up, but maybe we should dial it back. You know, who's willing to take that step. But then if you dial it back and you lose, then you get fired. So I think the book and working with coach and talk with him really made me realize how unique he was, how Mm -hmm. brave he was to not just place all the emphasis on winning and how something is really missing in our basketball culture in the United States. It's an overemphasis on basketball. And I love the game of basketball. I've overemphasized it in my own life. It was the main source of friction in my marriage for like the first seven years. (laughs) Yeah, honey, I'm going to the store. And then I come back two hours later. Fresh and sweat. So I get it. I get it. But, you know. We, we have to sort of recalibrate, I think. And that's the thing that the book made me realize. Okay. Um, 
I love that. Well, hey, I, I know we're, I don't I want to be cognizant of your time. I'm sure your wife uh, probably probably looking for you right now. Now that we've taken up that, <laughs> yeah, I know. But I got one, I got uh, one more one more question for you here. Uh, I, I want to make sure that people get out and and read this book first of all, and just thank you for keeping Coach's story alive for future generations. I want to hear first what what you're up, what you're up to, and then I'll and then I'll hit my uh, final question. So, what do you got uh, going? on now or where can people read you besides the book and, and then any uh, upcoming projects you might have okay cool man so i'm at theundefeated.com. that's espn's platform dealing with race sports and culture you can read me and all of my tremendously talented colleagues over there you can see the undefeated on espn we got a ton of stuff shows and stuff on black history month we're on hulu i also am the producer of a documentary that has nothing to do with sports it's called the march on washington keepers of the dream connecting the March on Washington of 1963 to now that premieres uh, this week on the National Geographic channel, who is our corporate cousin. It's co-produced by the undefeated. And also you can see that at any time on Hulu starting this Thursday. Um, And then other than that, man, just really trying to uh, write more stories. The things that I like to write about involve sports, but transcend sports and have an importance that is bigger than sports. And when I first met coach Thompson, one of the very first things he said to me was, I don't want to write a book that's about basketball. It's about other things that are bigger than basketball. And I said, that's great, coach, because neither do I. So I'd like to get back to that. And, and you know, really, I've been inspired by uh, working with coach on his, his autobiography. I've learned a lot. And I like to apply that inspiration and those lessons to writing more stories that help explain the world we live in and help us get to a better place and help people. And then occasionally <laughs> write about James Harden flopping. And go beat some <laughs> That's right. Give some buckets. So you're going to get cold threes later with Josh. Take it. You're taking him out. <laughs> or full, full court cold 21 threes, baby that's a great name yeah a, cold threes is a great name exactly full court 21 you're definitely taking him out i, I want to watch him uh, really struggle on that one <laughs> all right jesse thanks so much for your time out, for the record aaron you're getting took out too <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna say that no i, I mentality right here <laughs> okay keep thinking right. that man appreciate you guys thanks all so right. much for thanks your time jesse and with coach thompson's book Thank you for listening to the 199 podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or view. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 199 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 